Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to continue our conversations with political business and philanthropic leaders here on Mackinac Island for the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference. Governor Gretchen Whitmer will join along with Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson and State Senator Mallory McMorrow. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm always really glad you decide to join us. We are in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference, our annual trip north to get away from the rigors of everyday life to see if our business and political and philanthropic leaders can get a different perspective on the challenges that we have in the state of Michigan. Maybe come up with solutions that they were unable to back home. Long history of big problems being solved up here on the island, but also, importantly, uh, a deep history of really important relationships taking place. Uh, People getting to know each other and getting to talk to each other in a way that they don't if they're every day at work in the legislature or the city council or other corners of our world. So far, the policy conference this year has really been about uh, population and the population challenges that we face, not just in the city of Detroit, which are profound, but also in the state of Michigan, which are growing. And the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, is expected today to talk an awful lot about that during her address. Mayor Mike Duggan of the city of Detroit yesterday talked a lot about population and tax reform, uh, something that he thinks has a lot to do with our population problems. Uh, Lots of people really batting around ideas that we don't hear back home all the time and trying to make things happen. We want to start today with a really prominent voice from our state legislature. Mallory McMorrow is a state senator from Michigan's 8th district. Uh, She has absolutely carved a national presence for herself from the state legislature, something you don't see every day, uh, and is somebody that uh, has the close ear of Governor Whitmer and lots of other folks in uh, our state. Uh, Mallory, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be up here on the island with you. Yeah, and you told me something before we started the show. This is your first Mackinac conference. It's my first conference, year five in the legislature. I don't think I would have said that. I would have said, hey, I see her up there all the time. (laughs) Um, But but I want to start with you just giving us your impression of it as somebody who is part of the legislature. uh, what, What do you make of all of this? You know, it is, it's almost indescribable. It's so unique and it's been, I think, 
incredible to get people in a room together who it would take months to get all of these same people on their schedules when we are, to your point, in our communities, in our districts, in our daily lives, with our families, or even in Lansing, which we've been so busy in the legislature between committees and meetings and hearings that just getting 20 minutes with people is sometimes impossible. So it's been really really incredible to be able to carve out that time and, and just do those meetings here. And you're here for some specific work as well that, that I want to that I want to jump right into. Uh, talk about this new challenge that the governor has put on your plate. Yeah, you know, I, it's certainly not a new challenge. Michigan's <laughs> population has been aging rapidly. We saw more people choose to retire or unfortunately pass away throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we had the state demographer come before my committee in Lansing and say if every childbearing aged woman were to get pregnant at the same time in Michigan, we still would not replace our workforce, which felt like a little bit of a personal attack. My daughter is only two. I'm not sure I'm ready for another one. Better but that's, get to work, Mallory. That's where we are right now. And it's 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 a real problem. We've got to make sure we have workforce coming in so that our seniors can retire and retire with dignity. It's all interconnected. So what is it that, that we need to do to to stop that slide, as you say, this is not something that's new. This has been going on for quite some time. Uh, I think one of the mistakes that we have made over and over is not tying it to other specific kinds of policies and investments that matter in in places where people are going as opposed to, to leaving. Um, but but tell me what, what you think we should be doing. Absolutely. We, we constantly hear Michigan compared to places like Florida or Tennessee, and I, I think that's the wrong comparison. Business leaders from Michigan came before our committee and showed the places where Michiganders are leaving, and they divided the states into two categories. One was states that are warm, and one was tech hubs. And I think recognizing as much as we can try to legislate it into existence, Michigan is never going to be a year-round warm state, although it's very hot uh, in our <laughs> neck of the woods today. But you look at a place like Minnesota, where they are investing heavily in education, in higher ed, in public transit, in services to make that such an appealing place to live and stay and raise a family that they are growing at a time when Michigan's population is declining. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point. There are states in the Midwest, yes. in our region, who are doing things differently yes. and getting different outcomes. And it's not that we have to become, like you say, Florida or Arizona or, right. or a place like that. We've got to be Minnesota. We've got to be Wisconsin to some uh, degree and, and other places that are, are spending money in a way that grows opportunity and grows a sense of security, I think, that yeah. people really look at when they're thinking about where to live. And, and Paula Gardner just did a really good deep dive over at Bridge Magazine. She took a trip to Columbus, Ohio, a city that is growing so rapidly yes. in comparison to Detroit, wh whose population is declining. And, and one of the things that I think Ohio is doing really well right now is tapping into their cities as the anchors. They are targeting economic development and investment around universities, around city centers, and not trying to spread all of the investment everywhere to give everybody a little piece, understanding that without strong cities, you don't have a strong state. And I think that's something, especially for Detroit, we've got to be sinking our investment into how do we make Detroit the anchor that it should be to grow our population. Yeah. So I want to talk a little about what's going on in Lansing this year, very different 
political alignment in the legislature. When you joined the legislature, you were in the minority. Now Democrats have control not just of your chamber, but also of the House and, of course, uh, the governor's mansion. Uh, give me a sense of your take on the things that you guys have been able to accomplish already, been a lot, uh, but also what difference you think those things will make for everyday Michiganders? What, how, how will people's lives be improved? So this is something somebody told me that I didn't even realize. This has been the most productive legislature in terms of the number of bills signed into law. More laws have been passed than the past six legislatures combined wow. by this point. And there's a lot of consequential things. So expanding the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act to explicitly include LGBTQ Michiganders, expanding the earned income tax credit, which is going to raise more than 100,000 families out of poverty, repealing the retirement tax, which we know so many people who are on a fixed income who saw $1,000 leave their, their bank accounts under the Snyder administration, um, and gun violence prevention. You know, we saw, we continue to see this epidemic of gun violence every single day, and we have passed universal background checks, safe storage, and red flag laws, which I've been working on for the past five years. It's, it's been really incredible. When, when you explain to your constituents the things that you're doing and what difference you think it will make for them, what do you say? When I ran for office for the first time, you know, I, when I put a baseball cap on and a T-shirt, I look very young. And I, when I was going door to door and knocking on doors, a lot of people in Oakland County said, you remind me a lot of my daughter who left and went to Denver or Chicago or New York. And they asked, what is it that brought you back to Michigan? And that is the message that we're able to take back right now. We are trying to pass policies and create a Michigan where everyone is welcome, where everyone is going to be protected. And then the next step, what we're talking about at this conference is, how do we make sure that when everybody gets here, they've got an opportunity to thrive? Yeah. So, uh, the, as you say, the, the theme this week is the power of and, and, and emphasis on collaboration and cooperation and, and things that in politics we don't see as frequently as we might like to. Give us a sense of how collaboration is unfolding in the legislature right now with Democrats in control with narrow majorities, which means that there are going to be times when you may need Republican votes. I hear from a lot of Republican legislators, of course, that they feel locked out, that, that uh, the majority is you know, full steam ahead with its agenda and not including them. But, but from your chair, what, what are the opportunities for collaboration and, and how has that been working so far? You know, I... Coming from the experience of four years in the minority, and not only four years in the minority, but four years in the minority as somebody who flipped a district from Republican to Democratic, I introduced 49 bills. I never got a hearing on a single one. So hearing some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle complain that they haven't gotten a hearing four months in, part of me wants to say, well, call me in four years when, when you've been completely locked out. But I will say it was really important for us as Democrats to come out and show that we're not shy. Take on a lot of the issues like right to work, like prevailing wage, like Elliot Larson and repealing the abortion ban to show people that, that we're serious and we can be productive and we can govern. Uh, but now that we're in the budget process and looking forward, I have been having really productive conversations with the Republicans on my economic development committee. There's a lot of common ground. There's a lot that we are going to work collectively on, on, on issues moving forward. Now that we've kind of gotten the big Democratic priorities sort of out of the way to say that we will. And I'm really optimistic about what we're going to see from here on out. So you mentioned cities earlier. And of course, you know, the budget is an opportunity to really focus 
state resources on the things that, that matter. Are there ways in this, this first Democratic budget in, what, 40 years or so, <laughs> um, to, to, to really turn the page, really, on, in the way that we deal with, with cities? I ask that with, in the fore of my mind, Highland Park, which yes. uh, is a city in, in our neck of the woods in southeast Michigan that's in real trouble. It's not the first. It's 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 problems look very similar in some ways to other cities who have just not been able to maintain population or uh, or, or tax receipts in order to, to, to provide sufficient services to their to their residents. What what should people in Highland Park? What should people in Detroit? What should people in Muskegon be looking at in terms of the budgetary priorities that would say cities do matter in Michigan? So I think what you've seen for the last 40 years is that cities, especially cities that are diverse in Michigan, have been disinvested in. We have seen a disproportionate amount of funding go out state uh, and away from the population centers. And, and you see that play out in a place like Highland Park. When there are decades of disinvestment, it's really hard to keep it together and provide services. And our infrastructure, our water infrastructure, is interconnected. It affects the entire region. It doesn't end where Highland Park ends. And what you've seen in what we've passed out so far in our supplementals, we had for the first time $50 million in ongoing funding for affordable housing. That's a pot of money we've never had before. We have $25 million to prevent water shutoffs. We need much more, but that's a start. That is a signal that we're going to take this seriously. Um, I've heard from residents, and I know people like Senator Runstead constantly talk about Oakland County residents paying for Highland Park, but we're interconnected. If we can make them whole now, in a moment when there is a budget surplus, and then address the systemic issues in something like a regional water system so that this doesn't become something where we have to wait until it fails before we address it in the future. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Senator Mallory McMorrow, it's always great to catch up with you. Great to catch up with you here on Mackinac Island. Will you, will you be back? I think so. It's <laughs> yeah. very productive. I was yeah. a little unsure of how it would go, um, but this has been a really, really great time to actually get a lot of meaningful work done. I mean, it's a, that's a really important perspective. There, there are a lot of people who cast a lot of doubt on yeah. what gets done up here. I always make the case for the things that I know have happened up here, but it's really great to have somebody who's here for the first time talk yeah. about how overwhelming it is uh, to, to be able to get to so many people at once and actually have productive conversations. So uh, again, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. All right. When we come back, we are going to continue our conversations up here on Mackinac Island for the Mackinac Policy Conference. Governor Gretchen Whitmer is going to join us next. And a little later in the show, we're going to talk with Jocelyn Benson, who is the Secretary of State here. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. We are in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island for the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference, talking with business and political and philanthropic leaders about 
what they're talking about here, about the challenges and the successes and failures that we have here in the state of Michigan. And we now have somebody who is in the middle of all of those things. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer is the governor of the state of Michigan, the newly reelected governor of the state of Michigan. Uh, governor, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Good to be with you. Yeah, I, I don't think I've talked to you since uh, since the election last year. <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> I know. That's a little <laughs> odd. Um, it is good to see you. Um, same question I put to everybody up here. Uh, tell me what your goal is for the week. What's on your agenda up here? Lots of people always come to me and say, what do they actually do up there? What actually happens? So I always try to get people to explain uh, you know there's a lot that that uh, people have planned there are a lot of goals that people have uh, what are yours well my goal is to enlist everyone here to be a part of team michigan as we are thinking about our challenges as a state there are a lot of great things happening and people are feeling pretty optimistic as you know the shuba poll earlier this week showed people are optimistic but yeah. we're also sober about that there are some ongoing challenges for us we've made some great strides but my focus um, today on the main stage is going to be talking about strategic population growth. We know that our population did increase in the last census, but it was at a much you know, slower clip than other states. 49th and, out of 50. Yep, we lost a congressional seat, and you know, we've got a, a powerful story to tell. There are a lot of great reasons that people are coming to Michigan. We got to tell that story and we've got to make sure that every person in Michigan and who's looking at Michigan sees a real path to prosperity here. And so today I'll be talking about strategic population growth, what it would mean for a long-term infrastructure uh, need and plan as well as uh, improving outcomes for kids in our ed education system. Yeah. So uh, since the election last year and the, uh, the change in control in the legislature, you, you guys have been really busy in Lansing. You've gotten a lot of things done, a lot of things that Democrats have wanted to do for, for many years and haven't had the numbers uh, to do. I, I, I just want to get you to recap what you think are the highlights of this first five months of, of the new term and why the things that you're doing will actually matter to Michiganders. Mm -hmm. Well, first, let me start with I'm grateful to have some wonderful partners in the legislature. Speaker Joe Tate, a Detroiter, um, has been just an incredible leader. Senator Winnie Brinks, the Senate Majority Leader, um, has been as well. And so I'm really pleased to be able to say that in the first 100 days, we delivered a billion dollar tax break. So that is help for working families, people that are, are working but can't get ahead. And we got rid of the retirement tax. So that's relief for seniors. We expanded our Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act to encompass the LGBTQ plus community. We got rid of the 1931 law that told women what to do with their bodies and made no exceptions. We expanded workers' ability to collectively bargain. We've ensured that um, Michigan has some common sense gun laws on the books. So we've gotten an incredible amount done. There's a lot more good work yet to do, but I'm, I'm proud of laying that, that framework because that's how we ensure that Michigan is a place where every person can see a future for themselves. Yeah. So uh, back to population. Um, we've been talking about population and the need to lose fewer people and attract more people to Michigan for a, a really long time. And it's been a constant theme up here uh, on, on Mackinac. 
we we also in the background of that conversation, I think, always talk about an investment agenda that I think is really key to to, to pulling those levels levers. Um, but we never get to that that investment agenda. It feels like, and that's why we keep slipping behind. So, what do you think we need to do differently, and what do you plan to do differently to actually get that going? Yeah, I'm so grateful for the question. So there's. I think we've got a real opportunity here. And and a lot of folks have talked about population growth, but it's difficult when you've got to change an administration every four to eight years, eight, pretty much eight years, the yeah. last few decades. And that's why the, the council that I'm going to be announcing today, co-chaired by a pretty prominent Republican and a pretty prominent Democrat, um, will help pull in not just business leaders, but labor leaders, as well as academic leaders and elected leaders, to ensure that we have a strategy that transcends my time as governor. We won't have fixed this in three and a half years, but this is gonna lay the groundwork so that whomever comes after me can continue moving our state forward. We can't do this seesaw where we just focus on it for a couple years and then we get a new person there. We've gotta have something that transcends and that's why it shouldn't be led by me or any one person or any political party for that matter. This is a team Michigan moment and that's why I'm creating this council to Put the work together by December we'll have a plan and then we're going to be executing yeah uh, I, I also want to talk to you about Highland Park uh, which is a small city inside the city of Detroit uh, a really great place with a wonderful history but having a terrible time uh, with its budget and and with infrastructure what's the state's role in helping them to fix that? And I've, I asked that specifically about Highland Park, but I think, again, that fits into a much larger context of discussion about how we support cities. I, I, I've said for a long time, I think Michigan does a terrible job making sure that cities have the tools that they need to serve their residents. So tell me what you would what you would do uh, to help Highland Park and what more we should be doing to prevent other cities from finding themselves in the same position. Right, so the people of Highland Park have been paying their water bills, but the city of Highland Park hasn't been, hasn't been paying, paying Gliwa. <laughs> yeah. And so Gliwa sued the city of Highland Park. I think as the governor of Michigan, we're obviously not a party to the lawsuit. However, everyone's assuming that we will uh, swoop in and make everything smooth. Yeah. Uh, we're watching very closely. We have signaled that we are interested in forging a solution, but it can't be borne by the homeowners of Highland Park who've been paying their bills and now are, are very worried about what is this gonna mean if, uh, depending on the outcome of, of the med mediation that's happening. So we are uh, not a party to the suit, but we are paying a close attention because obviously as governor, I care about the people of Highland Park and we gotta have a, a solution here that doesn't voice more responsibility or cut people off of access to water for which they've paid. What should we change in Michigan to make sure cities don't find themselves? I mean, look, Detroit went through the largest municipal bankruptcy in the U.S. history. We've had lots of other cities go through emergency management, which is now, I think, uh, third rail. No one would do that again. Um, but we still have a lot of cities that can't make ends meet because of population decline, because of industrial decline, all kinds of reasons. Uh, should we be rethinking the basis for cities and their financial uh, outlook in Michigan? Uh, frankly, yes, I, I do think that we should be. And, um, you know, every year we talk about revenue sharing. Is it, is it going to go up and by how much? But we don't ever have that harder conversation about 
does the structure really still make sense anymore, right? in 2023, yeah. right? So I, I do think, and I welcome that um, at this juncture, you know, we're working on another budget bill, hoping that we can make sure that we can continue to keep people safe in their communities, which we know public safety is funded through those revenue sharing bills. But um, I do think you're, you're making an important point, and I'm certainly eager and open to having that conversation with our leadership across the state to see if there's a system that makes more sense in 2023 yeah. and beyond. Yeah. Uh, I got you here. I got to ask the question. Uh, your name comes up an awful lot in national politics uh, these days. I see you on, on uh, the cable news channels and lots of people writing about you and your future. Do you have any interest in <laughs> uh, the national elections that will take place next year? I think you should do what I do, and I ignore all that and stay focused <laughs> on my job here in Michigan. Yeah, this is the only place I want to be. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, there's an awful lot of buzz it about is. it. It is. I keep trying to tamp it down, but, you know, the fact is I am absolutely 100% focused on Michigan. I've got three and a half years to continue this work, and um, there's a lot, a lot to do. Yeah. All right. Uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, always great to see you. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, Stephen. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have more with Detroit Today. Today, from the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you joined us. Uh, great opportunity up here to talk with many of the statewide publicly elected officials here in the state of Michigan, and we're joined now by one of them, Jocelyn Benson is the Secretary of State for Michigan. Uh, Jocelyn, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. It's always so much fun. I love our conversations. Yes, so and thank it you. is great to see you here on Mackinac, Yeah, thank you. You too. On this beautiful, beautiful weather. Uh, this has been the most uh, spectacular weather week I've ever had on Mackinac. Yeah. And I'm going to jinx it, I'm sure. But, uh, but it really has been wonderful. Um, so I want to start with the way I start with everybody up here. What's on your agenda this week? What are you looking mm. at that you feel like maybe we make some progress on or or get done? Well, I, I say this as someone who begrudgingly drove up 75, knowing there's so much work we have to do in our state <laughs> and why are we all coming to Mackinac? And then getting so much work done over these last few hours that, that since I've been here on the budget. In particular, I think there are a lot of conversations happening on the budget right now. We've seen, um, you know, I've got to make the case to lawmakers about how they've got to fully fund our elections. We've got nine days of early voting all across the state. Clerks need funds. Uh, we estimate up to, to $60 million in one-time funds to make proposal two real. And we've got to communicate to lawmakers that it's their voters, it's their clerks that need support of these mm -hmm. funds. And having these conversations in quick succession up here is, frankly, frankly, far more productive than anything I would have been able to do walking the halls in Lansing. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little more about that proposal, too. Let's mm -hmm. remind listeners what that is and mm -hmm. 
why it requires funding. Well, voters voted overwhelmingly in 2022 to amend our state constitution to create nine days of early voting in our state and guarantee drop box, or which basically ballot return receptacles all throughout our state for every 15,000, one for every 15,000 voters. It's going to cost money now to make real these requirements, these voter mandated requirements that every clerk must meet and in advance of next year's elections, including the presidential primary in August and November. So we've got a lot of work to do with our clerks to make sure they're ready, and it's made possible by the legislature funding our ability to hire the people, to staff the polls, to, to, to get more machines on order and get more you know, all the ballots, everything, all the security requirements in place. Uh, and it's not a heavy lift. I mean, we know there's there are funds available, and so my job is just to make the case on behalf of all the voters who enacted these policies that making them real now requires the legislature to step up and invest in our elections. And you supported uh, that, that change to our Constitution. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it matters to have early voting and the other measures that are in Prop 2? Well, we've seen an uptick in voting since the voters enacted Proposal 2 in 2018, mm -hmm. which created no reason absentee voting, election day registration, and a number of other changes that required funding to implement as well. But as a result, we had the highest turnout election in Michigan's history in 2022, the highest turnout midterm election in 2020 in 22, mm -hmm. uh, and the highest youth turnout in the, st in the country in Michigan as a result of these voter-driven changes. So creating even more options to vote in Michigan, which this new proposal enacted in 2022 does through early voting and other provisions, just makes voting more convenient and easier than ever before, and will particularly help our seniors, uh, um, voters who don't vote often, uh, young voters, and others participating more actively in the process, which makes all that we do a more healthy and robust effort. So all of that requires the legislature to now invest in those changes to make them real. And I think once they do, we'll see voting, we'll see Michigan jettison to the top of states in this country for one of the more healthier, accessible democracies uh, that any state has. And, and it was all because of voters driving the policy and lawmakers then funding our ability to make sure. that real. You still hear these criticisms, though, mm -hmm. that these efforts are ultimately about cheating, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're about trying to, to allow people to vote who sh should not be able to vote or create votes where they don't exist. I always want to give you a chance to, yeah. to answer that. Why is that not what's going well, on? Well, look, first we have to recognize in a democracy, every citizen has a right to vote and have their voice heard. And our job, my job as the state chief election officer, is to make that real for everyone, no matter who they are, where they are, or how they vote. So with that said, we recognize there's been a strategy, frankly, by folks who have been losing elections to not accept the results and instead attack the process, which is ultimately attacking the voters and attacking their will. And my job is to defend and protect their will every day of the week. And that's what I proudly do and signed up to do. But we know that noise is going to only increase in advance of 2024. So we're increasing the work we do to open up the, the doors to our election processes for people to come in and see. You can, before every election, see the testing of the equipment to affirm that it's counting ballots accurately. You can serve as a poll worker to see yourself that how secure our processes are. And we want people to be a part of the process because in doing so, that can demystify some of it and cut through some of the lies and also recognize that the candidates and politicians who are lying about our elections have an agenda that is not in the best interest of the voters and protecting their will. And so we're working to develop trusted 
voices of election facts and other information, faith leaders, sports leaders, mayors, and others, who can help us get the word out about the truth of our elections to cut through some of the misinformation, we have to recognize as well. It's become a cottage industry for candidates to raise money off of these lies, and so we'll expect them to keep doing that, but we can become smarter as a populace, and that's what my job is hopefully going to be about over these next few months. Yeah. And the burden that uh, these expanded opportunities put yeah on clerks on your office i mean it's not it's not inconsiderable it's it's a significant one and what i told i met with a bunch of clerks last week and i said yes this is a challenge we've got to implement nine days of early voting but look at all the challenges we've overcome over these last few years we overcame we ran the highest turnout election in our state in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic with a whole other host of new policies in place so we can do this we've done it before we'll do it again Mm -hmm. and we have more partners in the legislature and elsewhere than we've had before and those of us who've now been through this for several cycles are more wizened and toughened than we perhaps were when we entered the fray and so i'm really optimistic about our ability to get through the 24 election cycle with smooth election process but it's going to take all of us working together to stay informed and voters being critical thinkers and recognizing and, and discerning between the truth and the lies. Yeah. I'm talking with Jocelyn Benson. She's the Secretary of State here in the state of Michigan. We're at the Mackinac Policy Conference here in 2023 up on Mackinac Island. Uh, you're also talking about restorative uh, policies for people who lose their driver's licenses. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Talk about what it is that you're trying to get done and why that is really important. Well, several years ago, the legislature enacted policies to make it easier to to eliminate to eliminate drivers' fees and other drivers' responsibility fees and other fees that um, made it harder for folks to get back on the road after they'd um, had sort of minor civil infractions and the like. So our drivers' restoration clinics, drivers' license restoration clinics, help make real the law that was passed to make it easier for citizens to get back on the road and restore their licenses. We partner with with community leaders and faith leaders all around the country, I'm sorry, all around the state, uh, and from Detroit up to uh, Traverse City and Alpena, and make sure people have the tools and resources they need, partner with free legal assistance if if that's what's needed, get support paying those fees if that's what's needed, to help them get back on the road and recognizing that that's part of driving the economic engine in our state. Yeah. This in some ways is anti-poverty. Mm-hmm policy as well. And I think it's important to, to connect yeah. it to that, that, that lots of people find themselves in this position because they don't have money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then because they don't have a driver's license, uh, they're, they're cut off from all kinds of economic opportunity. Exactly. And we see just the act of getting someone's license restored can help them become an active member of the economy again, can help them get a better job than perhaps they have now, can help them just get to the hospital or drive their kids to school if they need it. So it is um, it is directly impacting and helping economic growth in our state by helping those in our society in our state who most need assistance and support getting out of a hole that they may, may have may be dug into through draconian policies and fines and fees that stack up over time and make it impossible for them to just get their license back. Yeah. We help them do that. And again, it's a policy that was enacted by the legislature a few years ago that our office has now just made real for everyone. It's not enough to just pass a law saying you can get 
your license back. You have to actually meet people where they are and help them through the process. And that's what these restoration clinics are designed to do. And with partners in the business community and the legal community, which is what we're here trying to get more of, uh, we can expand these clinics throughout the state and help the help more of the 150,000 drivers yeah. and residents who qualify to have their driver's license restored but may not have access to the tools and resources to know how to do it. Yeah. So before the last election, um, you had an issue with uh, the, the accessibility of Secretary of State's offices around the around the, the state. The pandemic, of course, was disruptive in that way mm -hmm. as well. Catch us up on where you are, making sure that it's easy to do the things that we have to do with the Secretary of State. Yeah, I think any resident who's come through our offices or interacted with our office over the last few years has seen firsthand how dramatically we have improved the offices of the Secretary of State. We've got 131 branch offices all across the state. We opened a new one in Detroit for the first time in a few decades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at every single office, you can walk up or schedule your visit ahead of time and avoid any type of waiting at all uh, and be seen right away for the most part and be on with your day. We've installed self-service stations in grocery stores all across the state. We've expanded our online options. And we've just launched today two more mobile offices that will be in the field uh, all throughout Michigan, uh, meeting people at senior centers and other places to help them get access to all the services they may need to get their driver's license, to get a state ID, to get on the road, uh, to transfer a vehicle title, mm -hmm. anything they need from our office, they can get now more easily than ever before. And this is, to me, part and parcel with making democracy work for everyone. It's making government work for everyone. And if you're going to participate in electing government leaders, we should do everything we can to make your lives easier. And that's what we've been able to do with improving our department. Yeah. Um, when you when you think of the things that we do at Secretary of State offices now, how much of that becomes something I can do on my phone or, yeah. or sitting at my laptop yeah, in my house in the next few years? You'll find mo the vast majority of our services are, are available online uh, and are on your phone or on a mobile website, and we want to expand that even more in years to come. The big thing is there are always going to be times also when you have to come in uh, to an office and do something in person like sell a vehicle. Sure. And we want to make sure that experience is as painless as possible. But we're also talking with lawmakers uh, about how to make title transfers available online in some cases and other move other services online because we know that's where a lot of business happens these days. Yep. Uh, and we already know more people use our, our online services than ever before. When I took office, only 25% of our transactions were done outside of branches. Now, between 60 and 70% of transactions are done outside of branch offices, which is another reason why you see those branch office services happen, uh, being offered more efficiently than ever before. Yeah. So we are about 18 months, I think, from the next presidential election. You know, the cycle is already in full swing. I, you know, we could talk for a long time about how annoying yeah. I find that, that we don't get a real break. Uh, <laughs> As an election administrator, <laughs> I agree. It just never ends. Um, but give us a, a preview of some of the things you are maybe concerned about or at least eyeing for mm -hmm. next year's election. I mean, we've, I want to be careful about how we say this. We have not had election trouble in Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, we have had people try to make trouble <laughs> mm -hmm. with our elections. Right. Um, are, are you worried that, uh, that next year will bring more of that or maybe even more than we've seen in the past. 
Yes, I think due to the fact that we haven't seen a whole lot of accountability for those who have tried to upend and disrupt our elections in the past. In fact, we see now the leader of the of one major political party in our state, the Michigan Republican Party, was outside then Cobo Hall in 2020 trying to stop ballots from legitimate ballots from being counted. So we're still in a very real battle over the future of our democracy. It's a battle that really began in 2020 and is not yet over. And in some ways, I hope the 2024 election will be the final stand of election deniers trying to interfere with the people's will and, and, and our election results. But all of that will depend on whether we successfully see our elections process through this storm. But I know we can because we have in the past and we've got more allies than ever before. And all you really need to do to be a part of our work to defend democracy is sign up to be a poll worker. Go to michigan.gov slash democracy MVP. Be a poll worker and help us defend democracy and also help us educate voters throughout the state about the truth of our elections, the options they have to vote, how to track your ballot, how to have affirmation that your ballot was counted, and ensure that you can trust the results of the election to be an accurate reflection of the will of the people. So we'll be actually convening community conversations around the state in the months ahead with faith leaders and others, uh, mayors and local leaders, to engage people in understanding our elections so that they can be equipped when the misinformation comes back to our state with the truth about our elections and, and have faith in them. So th these may seem like strange questions to ask, given that uh, you just got through your second uh, election uh, to be secretary of state, but it's politics and there's always speculation yeah. and, and wondering about, about other opportunities. A number of people have asked me if they th if I think you'll run for the open Senate seat, for instance, in, in 2024, I'd love uh, you to, to give me an idea of what you're thinking about that. But then also, next, uh, yeah. there's more elections after that. What, what are you thinking about in terms of your future here in the state? Well, I love my job. I love defending democracy. I've done it my whole career. And I love making government work better for everyone. And so the best thing I can do for the people of Michigan right now is do the job they elected me to do and continue doing it successfully as we've done these last few years. So making sure we're ready to tackle and sail through the 2024 election cycle is something I'm all in on doing and uh, can't really do anything other than that. As I've said, I don't want to be a candidate for anything else in the 2024 election cycle, even in, with an opportunity as, as tremendous as, as a Senate seat that my mentor Carl Levin once held. Um, but that said, after we get through the 2024 election cycle, I'm going to take a look at the options ahead and find a way that I can continue working to lead in Michigan, making government work better for everyone, addressing real equity and inclusion policies that we as a state need to grapple with as we become a true multiracial, multiethnic state and democracy, and making sure we continue to protect our fundamental rights and freedoms and our democracy for every citizen. I'm all in and continuing that work, and I'm excited to find and to continue to find ways to lead and serve the state of Michigan in the years ahead. So that sounds like a great pitch for a campaign for governor. Interesting. Is that well, I think, I mean, <laughs> I, the I other thing, the other thing I'm, I, I'm thinking right now about is we see a lot of progress happening in our state. Yeah. We've seen a lot of progress over these last few years. How do we keep that going? How do we preserve the legacy of what we're building now in a way that defines who we are in the state for a generation, a state that stands for people's rights, that stands to protect fundamental rights and freedoms of every citizen, that is inclusive and welcoming of everyone, that sees population growth instead of population yeah, decline, no which kidding. we still have to grapple with and address. So all of those are, are issues I want to continue to lean on and, and tackle. And um, and I'll, you know, 
look after how things how the path looks after the 2024 election cycle and make a decision soon after that okay see we got got a little policy <laughs> in there a little politics at the end great conversation justin and it, that is mackinac that's what you get at mackinac <laughs> that's right. a mix of the two, yeah right? uh-huh yeah. truly well, have a great mackinac thank you and, you too uh, great to see you always love our conversations and yeah. i'll come back anytime you want Today on 1019 WDET, we are in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the 2023 Mackinac Policy Conference. A chance for business and political and philanthropic leaders to get away from where they live, get together on Mackinac Island, and think and talk a little differently about our challenges and our problems. One of the themes that has come up over and over again at this year's Mackinac Policy Conference is population. Population in the city of Detroit, population in the state of Michigan. There's no secret that we have really profound population challenges, both in the city of Detroit and in the state of Michigan. The question is, what are we supposed to do about that? Should we be panicked about that? population challenge. And if we are, what are the levers we should pull to turn things in a different direction? We've got two guests with me right now who have been thinking an awful lot about those questions. Eric Lufer is the president of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. Eric, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, it's great to see you again. And Ani Turner is the Health, Economics, and Policy Program Director at Alterum. Alterum. Is that right? Altarum. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. Thanks. There we go. All right, Eric, I'm going to start with you. What do we make of the population challenges that we have in our state? So leading up to 1970, Michigan was one of the fastest growing states in the nation, growing faster than the national average. And that all led to good things with the economy. We are richer on average than most states. Since 1970, we really haven't been growing it as a state. It's one percent for as long as time you could say you'd lived in a state of 10 million people mm-hmm. uh, we all we all default to that right we all default There's 10 we, million of us and we've been right yeah um as we look forward we're not projected to grow much over the next 25 to 30 years either and maybe that's okay but it's how we're growing we're getting much older as a state we've lost the working age population the 18 to 35 year olds have gotten their high school diplomas, have gotten their college degrees, and they say, we're going to go look for opportunities in other places. And that's really the root of the problem as we think about everything that's going on in the state. Um, As it relates to the city of Detroit, it's sort of a microcosm, right? A lot of the young people in the city of Detroit have gone on looking for greener pastures, whether that's outstate or or in other states. going off to college and not coming back, or just looking for opportunities in other places. So we really need to pull together in in your introduction, right? We've got philanthropy, we've got government, we've got business, we've got concerned citizens all up here, and they're hearing the message, and this isn't the first time. It won't be the last time, 
but the fact that we're all talking about it now is really encouraging that maybe this time something happened. Um, economically, you know, as Eric was saying, um, you know, 50 years ago, we people could make a good income, good benefits, um, but our per capita income, household incomes are declining, again, rel relative to the rest of the country. So along all of these dimensions, it's been decades in the making, but as we look ahead, what's our path to the future if we don't change things? It's continued slow decline is what we're seeing. We need to make investments, but that's not just financial investments. We need to figure out why we've been losing an education proficiency all the while we're putting more money into education. Uh, what about the state, Annie, mm -hmm. and, and the opportunities to stop? And, and we should be clear, it's not that Michigan's losing population right now. It's that the population here is growing much slower right. than, than other places. Uh, yeah. We're gr I mean, so it's a comparative loss, right? Yeah, although in about a generation, we w given current trends, we will start we will to start decline to, because yeah. there'll be more deaths than births. We're still losing people to other states. On that, international immigration is a positive, but it won't be enough to offset those other losses. Come about mid 2040s, you know, we're projected to start to actually start to decline at that point. Um, but yeah, you know, and the story's of course different throughout the state. We're looking at the big picture across the state, um, but there are parts of the state that are growing, and there are parts of the state that are already declining. So some of the solutions are going to have to be tailored to the challenges um, in each area. But you know, you mentioned immigration. I think international immigration is a steady, positive source. Immigra mm -hmm. Immigrants, both domestic and international, tend to have a higher education level than native Michiganders. And um, so th it's something to be looking at anyway. I think we're expecting 20,000, 22,000 per year. If we get back to kind of pre-pandemic levels of international immigration you know, coming into Michigan anyway. It's interesting when you think about statewide, we have Detroit and Flint and a lot of our older cities that have gone through what Detroit's gone through with the population loss. And then we've got the suburbs that have been prospering all along. But then you get in rural Michigan, and it's much the same story as the inner cities. Not as deep a poverty, um, but still issues of aging, still issues of lack of infrastructure investment, uh, the school system struggling in much the same way. So, it's, it's the same story with the different uh, different sorts of people mm -hmm. who don't see the similarities between themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Eric Lufer of the Citizens Research Council and Ani Turner of Altarum Institute. Uh, congratulations on uh, the study. We look forward to more of the outcomes from it. Uh, and thanks for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having us. We want to let everyone know they can find these papers at crcmich.org. Yes, excellent. That is going to do it for us today on what is the last day of the Mackinac Policy Conference on Mackinac Island. Tomorrow, we are going to sit and talk with members of the media who are up here covering the conference about what they saw, what they learned, and what they believe the leaders here will bring back with them in order to make the state better. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's public radio station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. Detroit Today is produced by Nick Austin and Sam Corey. 
Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. We'll talk again tomorrow.